Philippians chapter 1. Israel will be this morning. Philippians chapter 1. Three weeks ago, we started a new series called Rejoice in the Lord. And uh, we just sung a song that dealt with that. And uh, certainly, uh, we're trying to learn the lessons about how to rejoice in the Lord in the good times, but particularly in the bad. It's easy to rejoice when everything's going well, when you win the lottery, when, you know, you get this giant inheritance and, uh, you know, everything goes well. Your team wins the World Series and your team wins the uh, NHL Stanley Cup. Not that anybody else in this room cares, but me on that. I know I'm probably the only hockey fan in Oklahoma, but that's okay. Oh, we have another one, and I'm glad the Boston Bruins didn't win this past this past season. Brother Tom, that was a blessing to my heart. Um, but uh, we're trying to learn how to rejoice in the Lord when you get some bad news, uh, when things aren't going as well as you wish they were. And uh, that certainly is the theme of the book of Philippians, and we're learning lessons uh, as we go through this. Um, I do want to remind everybody about the challenge that I put out on the very first Sunday regarding this series, and that was the challenge to memorize the entire book of Philippians. 104 verses, um, I would challenge you to do that, and uh, I think many of you could. Um, I think it would be a great challenge to work on. Honestly, it wouldn't take that much time as we go through this to memorize the verses that we cover each Sunday. Last Sunday, we covered two, serv- two verses. Today, we're going to cover, well, verses 3 through 8. Um, so if you kind of break it up in chunks like that, it can easily be done. And uh, I would encourage and challenge some of you to do that. I realize that probably not everybody's going to, but I would encourage as many as possible to go ahead and join me in doing that. I think it'll be a good exercise. All right, Philippians chapter 1. If, if you're there, would you join me in standing as we read verses 3 through verse number 8 uh, this morning from Philippians chapter number 1. Uh, Philippians 1 verse 3 says this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace." For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for this precious book of the Bible. Lord, all 66 books of the Bible are precious and special. Lord, as we kind of dive into this particular book and dissect it and and, uh, figure out what Paul's trying to say and teach us in these in these words, I pray, Lord, you'd give us great understanding this morning. I pray, Lord, you'd guide us into all truth as we look into your precious word. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Is there a person in your life that really, really means a lot to you? I hope that if you're married this morning, you're probably thinking, hopefully, of your spouse. 
But maybe you're thinking of someone who has been a blessing to you throughout your life, who has impacted your life in a way that's hard to really even communicate. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend that is so special and precious to you that it's really hard to put into words. I think of an example in history of of a man who who had a friend that was very, very special to him. Uh, The man's name was Jesse Owens, and uh, he was an Olympian. Jesse Owens seemed sure to win the long jump at the 1936 Games. The year before, he had jumped 26 feet, eight and a quarter inches, a record that would stand for 25 years. Well, as he walked to the long jump pit, however, Owen saw a tall, blue-eyed, blonde German taking practice jumps in the 26-foot range. Owens, of course, felt nervous. He was acutely aware of the Nazis' desire to prove uh, Aryan superiority, especially over blacks. Well, at this point, the tall German introduced himself as Luz Long, and uh, you can see the two there on the screen this morning. You should be able to qualify with your eyes closed, Luz said to Jesse, referring to his two jumps. Well, for the next few moments, the black son of a sharecropper and the white model of Nazi manhood chatted. Then Long made a suggestion. Since the qualifying distance was only 23 feet, five and a half inches, why not make a mark several inches before the takeoff board and jump from there, just to play it safe? Owens did and qualified easily. In the finals, Owens set an Olympic record and earned the second of four gold medals. The first person to congratulate him was Luz Long, in full view of Adolf Hitler. Owens never did see Luz Long again because Long was killed in World War II. Here's what Jesse Owens later wrote. He said, you could melt down all the medals and cups that I have, and they wouldn't be a plaiting on the 24-carat friendship I felt for Luz Long. You see, Paul here, as he writes to the church at Philippi, felt much the same way. There was something special. This was, uh, it, this was actually, the book of Philippians was his most tender of all of his epistles. And it was so because of his unique relationship with this church family. This relationship produced in Paul a a heart of gratitude for this church. And in this passage, verses uh, 3 through verse number 8, we see four reasons he was so thankful for this church family. And I'd like to share them with you this morning. First of all, uh, notice that he was thankful for their fellowship in the gospel. Verse 3 says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He was thankful for their fellowship in the gospel. Now the fellowship he was speaking about here in uh, in these three verses was a two-way street. And by the way, the best, most fulfilling relationships have some give and take. It's not just a, uh, you minister to me only. But uh, I'm going to minister to you as well. And we see that in the relationship between Paul and the church at Philippi. First of all, notice here how he ministered to them. And he did indeed minister to them. He did indeed serve them and invest in them. 
In verse number three, he said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He remembered them personally. Look, whenever this church came to mind, Paul's heart immediately went into a thanksgiving mode. I hope that when you think of Cornerstone Baptist Church, your heart also goes into a thanksgiving mode. Um, and Paul then paused whenever uh, the church at Philippi uh, came into his mind. He paused and took the time to give thanks to God for this special church family. Well, why? Why would, why would he have this special relationship? Well, understanding how this church began, of course, gives some insight and clues as to why he said, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You remember when Lydia placed her faith in Christ there in, uh, on that riverbank, there in uh, Acts chapter number 16? And then she opened her home, and, and that really became the first church building in, in uh, Philippi. How about the early morning breakfast that Paul and his missions team shared there in the jailer's house after he and his family got saved and baptized? Oh, there were some indeed wonderful and fond memories that came flooding into Paul's mind when he thought of the church at Philippi, these special and precious believers and friends that he had in his life. I, I believe it is healthy to give thanks for those who helped us in life to get to the point where we are. None of us got here by ourselves. None of us are where we're at in our lives because of just us. Other people invested in us and, and uh, poured into us and helped us get to the place we are at this moment in our life. As I took time even this week as I was preparing this to think of those in my life who helped me get to the point where I'm at here in my life. Certainly, I... I think of my dear wife, who has believed and supported me all these 19 years. We just celebrated 19 years this past Monday. And in these last 19 years, she stood by me and, and helped me and encouraged me and loved me through the thick and the thin. I, of course, think of my parents, my parents who decided to take me to church when I didn't want to go to church, and they took me anyway. I think of... Uh, my pastor there in California who encouraged me to go to Bible college, and I didn't really want to go to a Bible college. I didn't want to be like all those Bible college students who say amen and praise the Lord all the time. That wasn't me, or at least not yet, until I went to Bible college, and I was saying praise the Lord and amen all the time. And I went, oh no, it's happening. <laughs> but I'm so thankful for my pastor who encouraged me to do that. And put that seed thought into my heart. My aunts and uncles and my grandmas and grandpas who loved me and encouraged me and helped me. I think of my pastor in California that I served with for almost 16 years in California. Much of who I am today as a pastor is because of his influence in my life. A lot of the things that I do as a pastor, I do because he did them. And I realize that uh, his influence is invaluable. And then for three years, the Lord let us be in uh, Montana, and I was under the leadership of my brother-in-law, who was also my pastor. And a lot of who I am today, again, is a direct result of his influence in my life. I am a product of many people who have invested in my life over the years, and whenever I think of them, it causes me to be thankful. I would encourage you from time to time to 
Go through that list in your own life. Lord, who, who did you put in my life to encourage me to get me to the point where I am in my life? And Maybe I would encourage you to express some gratitude and to some thanksgiving, obviously to God, but also to them for the influence that they've had in your life. I'm also thankful for the church family here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. I'm grateful for your love for the Lord. I'm grateful for your love for this church. I'm grateful for your love for one another and your desire to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Your big heart for missions is a blessing to me. And I thank my God upon every remembrance of you as well. And so I can relate to the Apostle Paul. But he didn't just remember them personally, he also remembered them prayerfully in verse number four. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making requests with joy. You notice the first word in that verse says always. You know, we're, we're always told to stay away from the words always and never and to never say never and always, Right? But when the Apostle Paul says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy, I actually believe what he's saying. Um, this, was a, this man was a prayer warrior. And I would say it was why he was so effective in his ministry. Now, a minister who is much in prayer is much more effective and powerful than he is cumbered about with much serving. And I'm chided by that, and I rebuke myself as a minister of the gospel to make sure that I am a minister who is much in prayer and not just cumbered about with much serving. E.M. Bounds once famously said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men of prayer. Paul was such a man. Paul, in many of his letters, mentioned his continual prayers for his readers. In many of his epistles, as you read through it, he says, I cease not to give thanks for you. I cease not to pray for you. It's amazing, his prayer life. Look, he realized that no matter where he was and no matter what bonds he was in, Satan could not deter him from the most important ministry, and that was the ministry of prayer. And here as he writes this epistle, I no doubt he wanted to be there and teaching and encouraging this church, but he couldn't because of his bonds, but he could definitely pray, and really that is the most important ministry of them all. You may not be able to accomplish all that you once did as a younger individual, but I'm telling you, if you can pray, that is the most important ministry that you can do. I met with uh, two other men this morning for our Sunday morning prayer ministry, and I said at the, at the end of that prayer time, I said, you know, this really is the most important ministry going on here at this church. Prayer is so important, and Paul was investing in this church by giving thanks for them and then also by spending time in prayer for them. But it wasn't just him giving to them. They also gave to him too, because notice also how they ministered to him. How they ministered to him in verse number 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. 
He says, I appreciate your fellowship. It has refreshed me. It has blessed me. It has encouraged me along my journey. Look, this church family stood by the Apostle Paul and they supported him and prayed for him along the way. Once again, as he writes verse number 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the very first day until now. As he wrote that word, those two words, first day, I'm sure his mind went back 10 years in the past to when this church began and how immediately their hearts were knit together and the fellowship that he enjoyed with them and, and just the joy that that brought to his mind and to his heart. From day one, this church family and Paul, there was a special connection. They were kindred spirits. Their hearts were knit together. I'll never forget the night that Randy Nutt from Moore, Oklahoma, and I chatted about the remote possibility of me coming as the pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church. I was there in our large master bedroom in Helena, Montana, on speakerphone talking to Randy. I didn't think this was going to work out, but the more he and I talked, the more I thought, this is a very large, high possibility that this is going to work out. And it was in that conversation that immediately our, our hearts were knit together. Well, fast forward a couple months, and I come out here on May 19th in 2018 for the very first time to preach at Cornerstone Baptist Church. After the morning service, I met with several men in the conference room the men of the pulpit committee, and we began to discuss the possibility of me coming as the pastor. And in that afternoon, that long afternoon, I know some of you men were going, wow, that took a long time. But in that moment, in those moments, God was knitting our hearts together. And it was evident to me that this was going to probably be the will of God. And so as Paul writes for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, I can't help but relate to what the Apostle Paul is saying here when I think of Cornerstone Baptist Church. I, I also felt was what Paul was feeling. By the way, though, this wasn't a fleeting relationship. This wasn't just a, well, that was a really special moment, but then they all fell off the scene. Notice in verse 5 he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day, until now. Now, this book was written 10 years after the church was established there in Acts chapter 16. And so for these last 10 years, this church stayed in contact contact with the Apostle Paul, and, and uh, that took some real effort. This is before the days of texting, social media, and email, um, and even a a really handy and reliable postal service, <laughs> which when we lived in Montana was not extremely reliable. <laughs> um, it was really, it didn't make sense. Just to give you an example, sometimes when things had to go from one part of the town to another part of town, they all had to go through Great Falls, which was an hour away before it got to the other side of town. It was pretty remarkable. But in that day, in these Bible days, when a communication was difficult, 
this church stayed faithful to communicate with the Apostle Paul and to find out how he was doing and to encourage him and to fellowship with him in, this, uh, in, in the fellowship and the gospel. In these last 10 years, they stood by him and encouraged him along the way. Yes, Paul was thankful for their fellowship in the gospel. But not only that, he was also thankful for their faithfulness in the gospel. Their faithfulness in the gospel, and this leads us to verse number 6 here, being confident of this very thing, that he, with, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul starts out this verse stating his confidence. By the way, his confidence wasn't based on feeling or emotion, but it was based on the promises of God. He's saying being confident of this very thing. The story is told about a family that was vacationing in a remote camping area. The father was, of course, driving, and when they came across a large sign that said, uh, road closed, do not enter, the man thought, that doesn't apply to me. Uh, and so he proceeded around the sign because he was confident that it would save them time on their journey. Some of you kind of know where this story is probably going to end. Well, the wife was obviously resistant to the adventure, but there was no turning back for this persistent road warrior. He was going to blaze a trail and be the hero of his family and save precious moments off their trip by taking this shortcut. But after a few miles of successful navigation, he began to boast about his gift of discernment, thinking, I am the greatest driver in the history of mankind. But his proud smile was quickly replaced with humble sweat with, when the road led to a washed-out bridge. Oh, great. So he sheepishly turned the car around and retraced his tracks back to the main road. When they arrived at the original warning sign, he was greeted by large block letters on the back side of that sign. His wife and three children all gladly read the hand-painted message out loud. And it said, welcome back, stupid. <laughs> you know, our confidence in ourselves obviously may be misplaced once in a while, but confidence in the Lord is always sure. And Paul, as he writes this, says, being confident in this very thing, he is being confident not in himself, but in the Lord himself couple thoughts here in this verse that I want to point out. First of all, I want us to see the originator of redemption. You know, in this verse, this is a special verse and one that most of us are familiar with. But here he's talking about their faithfulness. And, but, it, but it doesn't just start with being faithful. It starts with redemption. And, 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 and in this verse, we see the originator of redemption. In verse number six, being confident is very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you. Who is this originator? Was it Paul himself? No, it wasn't. It was the Lord. It was God who started the work of redemption. It was God who created the way of redemption. And it is God who does the convicting. And it is God who draws us to a saving relationship with Him. Oh, He can use others to accomplish this. He can use a pastor. He can use a friend. He can use a co-worker. He can use a neighbor, a family member, even a stranger but ultimately it is God who does the saving. He is the originator of redemption. But notice not only the originator, notice the operation of redemption. 
How does this redemption work in our life? Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you. What is that work? What is that operation of redemption? Well, God's work of redemption is twofold. First of all, it starts with salvation. Uh, the, the moment that we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It, it happens in a moment. It's a, it's a decision of faith and belief in Christ alone. One of the most special conversions or decisions of redemption that ever took place in the Bible took place there in Philippi. When that jailer heard and saw the testimony of Paul and Silas in that prison cell, and after that earthquake, which by the way, aren't you glad you live in Oklahoma and not California? I'm glad to not be living in California anymore. <laughs> those, uh, those, you know, here in Oklahoma, at least we get a little bit of a warning. Uh, but there in California, there are no warnings. Uh, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Uh, it will just come, those earthquakes. Well, after midnight there, that earthquake took place in that prison there. And, and uh, all those prisoners were released. And, and the jailer thought, this is the end. My career is over and they're going to hang me because of it. And Paul and Silas said, no, 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 don't worry, we're not leaving. We're still here. And, and the jailer had enough of their singing and, and had enough of seeing their testimony. And he said, you know, I've got to have what you have. So, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Oh, and what a precious answer that they gave. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, was and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable. It happens in a moment. And what a moment it was. Friend, can I ask you, do you remember the moment that you believed on Christ yourself? Do you remember the moment that you placed your faith in Christ alone? You may not remember the date or the time or the day, but do you remember that moment? If not, maybe God brought you here this very, mor this very morning to this very service to give you an opportunity to believe on Jesus Christ yourself so that you can be saved. I also want to mention that this could be your last opportunity to make this decision. It may not be. You may have a lot of other opportunities down the road. But it very well could be that this is your last opportunity. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, Paul says this, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In the book of Proverbs, we're told to not boast ourselves of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And none of us are guaranteed another day. You are guaranteed right now. Come to the Lord while you may. Because there is going to come a point when that opportunity is going to end for you. And I would encourage you to come to Christ for salvation and be born again. So it starts with salvation, but then it continues with sanctification. 
Sanctification, this is a lifelong process of being conformed into the image of Christ. This is the purging of our old life and things that would hinder us from fulfilling God's will. This happens after salvation, and it's a lifelong process. It will end when we get to glory. And we need to uh, be doing what we can to uh, be being conformed in the image of Christ. It's like the story I read about when a man was praying with his pastor at the altar. He prayed a prayer the pastor had heard many times before. Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. You know, the pastor probably turned to him and said, you know, I've heard this a million times. You know what we need to do? And so he, he, interrupted, he interrupted the man's prayer and said, and Lord, please kill the spider too. You know, the idea is that we need to, sanctification is the process of killing and removing the sins that so easily beset us. You know, many times we're like, Lord, please, please heal me from the, the mistakes that I've made, and yet we continue to make the same mistakes. Yet we continue to sin, and, 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 and Lord, please, please fix this situation that I'm going through, and a lot of it may be because we sinned and we got into this mess. It was our fault. Well, we need to kill the spider. Uh, you see, sanctification is the process then of killing and removing the sins that beset us and to stop giving place to the devil in our lives, to begin living and thinking like Christ would by following his example and in his steps. In other words, he's still working on me to make me what I need to be. Well, it took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be, because he's still working on me. None of us have arrived. None of us got to the place of perfection. Um, we're all a work in progress. All of us have, uh, you know, a big sign on our forehead that says "under construction." I get that, but God wants us to continue growing and not using that under construction as an excuse to sin, but as a as an encouragement to keep growing and to keep being conformed to the image of Christ. So the, uh, the operation of redemption is salvation first and then sanctification. But notice thirdly here the outcome of redemption. In verse 6 it says, uh, which he hath begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, the word perform here means to carry through. I want to encourage us today that God is going to see His plan through until the day of Jesus Christ. And J. Vernon McGee commented this regarding the day of Jesus Christ. He said, you and I are not living in the day of the Lord. We're not living in the day of the Old Testament. We're not living in the day of the millennium. We're not living in the day of eternity. We are living in the day of Jesus Christ. And that day will be consummated when He comes to take His own out of this world. And until then... You can count upon God to consummate whatever He intends for you. He is going to see it through. Now, that's good advice. Look, Fred, He is going to lead you by the still waters, yes, and the green pastures from time to time. He's going to bring you into a wonderful mountaintops, but He also may even lead you in the valley of the shadow of death but he will see it through until the day of Jesus Christ. Let this encourage you as you face trials, struggles, and difficulties. He will perform it. He's not done with you until he's done with you. 
He's not done with me until He's done with me. He will accomplish His plan in your life, and He never fails. So I'd encourage you to trust Him and be faithful to Him in the good times and in the bad. And as Paul was writing to this precious church family, he was thankful for Christ's work in them, and he was also grateful for their faithfulness to Christ as he performs that work in them. And I want to encourage you and ask you, will you be faithful to Christ as He performs and completes His work in you? There's a lot of Christians who say, yes, I'll be faithful as long as I get rich, as long as I'm healthy, wealthy, and wise, then I'll be faithful to Him as long as that's the kind of work He, he does in me. But I'm telling you, that's not always the work that He does in us. Sometimes He brings us into trials and difficulties to purify us and so that we would come out of that trial uh, as gold, like we sung a few moments ago. Will you be faithful to His work in your life as He performs it? As He leads you through the still waters and the green pastures, and as He leads you through the valley of the shadow of death, be faithful to Him. So Paul was thankful for the fact that they were faithful, but also he was thankful for their fearlessness in the gospel. Notice verse 7 here, he says, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Notice he says here, I have you in my heart. Why were they in his heart? Why were they so close to him? You know the people in your life that are in your heart. There's probably people that are maybe on your mind, but there are some special people in your life that are in your heart. The church at Philippi was that way for Paul. Why? I believe because they were not afraid of the risk of being associated with Paul. And the verse 7, later he says, I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. They were not afraid of being associated with Paul, even if it meant persecution. Paul had quite a reputation, didn't he? He was in many cases public enemy number one. Oftentimes he was not welcome as he was perceived as a threat to the economy and he was beaten and jailed because of it. And many times friends of him were also treated poorly. One commentator stated that the bold stand of the Philippians can be likened under the stand taken by those who sheltered Jews during the Nazi reign of terror in Europe. It was risky business to be associated with Paul. And yet this church family faithfully and fearlessly stood with Paul and supported him through the thick and thin. Paul told Timothy in his epistle to him, he said in in chapter 1, verse 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. He said, don't be ashamed of me. I know it's easy to do because when you associate with me, you're risking some great persecution. And the church at Philippi was that way. They were risking great persecution because of their association with Paul. But Paul knew what it was like to have people not want to be associated with him. He understood. He knew what it was like. At the end of his life, he testified of this. In 2 Timothy 4.10, he said, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. How sad. 
Paul, who didn't have a ton of friends, but one friend that he had decided to forsake him. We don't know exactly the details and specifics of why he left. It just simply says he loved this present world. But I can't help but think part of it was he was scared of the repercussions of being associated with the Apostle Paul. And he said, you know what, I'm done. Throwing in the towel. I'm just going to settle down and live a normal life like everybody else. This, this ministry life isn't for me anymore. And six verses later in that same chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, here's what Paul testified again. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. So he knew what it was like to have people forsake him and walk away from him. But here was a church family that stood by him despite the potential risk and how refreshing that must have been to this imprisoned apostle. As he's there in that Roman prison under house arrest, as he thought of this church, he thought, here's a church that was so fearless. Here's a church that didn't care what it meant to follow Christ and to be associated with me. They were willing to share in his defense and in his grace. In other words, the same things that motivated the Apostle Paul motivated them as well. And if it meant they were to be persecuted, so be it. Paul had already given them the ultimate object lesson on how to handle persecution, beatings, prison, and mob hate as a Christian there at the founding of the church. Because they can just think back, well, we saw how Paul dealt with it when he was in prison. And the jailer could get up and testify, and I remember when I was working there at the jail that night, and I heard them sing and give praise to God when they were beaten and put in the innermost uh, part of the prison. Amazing. Okay, so let's bring it down to us. Friend, what will it take from, for you to stop following Christ? What will it take, take to stop you from following Christ? From being faithful to Him? From being fearless? What will it take? The, the possibility of being overlooked for promotion at work because you're a godly Christian uh, business person? What about the risk of being ostracized by your family and friends because you're a religious zealot? You're part of that cult, or so they say. What about the potential of prison? That's not a reality at the moment, but we can see that coming on the horizon, can't we? What about the potential and threat of death? Would that stop you from following Christ? Cassie Renee Bernal was born on November 6, 1981. As she grew up, she was under the influence of drugs because of her friends. She did drugs and she smoked and she drank, she swore, she cut herself and wrote letters to her friends about killing her parents and committing suicide. Her mom was in her room when she came across some of these letters. And her parents put her in a private Christian school. Cassie's pastor asked her to join their Bible study group. She was reluctant but then decided to go. It wasn't long before she gave her life to Christ and was saved and became a better person as a result. Well, eventually, parent, Cassie's parents allowed her to go to public school again, 
And there Cassie had been talking to Eric Harris and Dylan Keeble during their high school chemistry class. She had told them all about Jesus Christ and his amazing sacrifice that he made on the cross of Calvary. She was eating lunch with her friend Emily when Eric came up to them during the Columbine shootings there in 1999. He supposedly yelled, Peekaboo! before shooting Cassie and Emily. Emily was urging Cassie to be quiet so that Eric would think that they were dead. But Cassie screamed in pain because the shot hurt so much. Eric came back over, picked up Cassie by the hair, and asked her if she believed in God. She said, yes. And those are her famous words. Then Eric shot Cassie dead. She died when she was only 17 years old. How would you have responded in that moment? What would it take for you to stop following Christ? This church at Philippi, they were not ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of Paul the prisoner as well. They were willing to partake in the bonds. They were willing to partake in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel and also the grace. So Paul was thankful for their fearlessness in the gospel. And and notice lastly this morning and quickly, Paul was also thankful for their friendship in the gospel. Verse number eight, for God is my record. God is my witness. How greatly I long after you all on the bowels of Jesus Christ. Oh, Paul greatly longed to be with this church family. Remember where he was when he was writing this letter? He wasn't sitting on a resort sipping an Arnold Palmer from Chick-fil-A, although that is one of the best beverages known to man. No, he was under house arrest and in bonds. He was a prisoner. And he longed then for a home-cooked meal at the jailer's home. Mrs. Jailer cooked a mean meatloaf, and he couldn't wait to get back and taste it. He wanted the fellowship and the friendship found in Lydia's house. And he was just kind of sitting there thinking, man, I would so much rather to be over in Philippi right now than to be in this stinking house with this Roman jailer watching my every move. He wanted to be part of this church family because this church family was great. They were, he was great friends with them. Another story I'd like to share with you, it's a baseball story. It's about Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, for most of, most of us know, he was the first black player to play Major League Baseball. Breaking baseball's color barrier, he faced, of course, jeering crowds in every stadium. While playing one day in his home stadium in Brooklyn, he committed an error. The fans began to ridicule him. He stood at second base, humiliated, while the fans continued to jeer. Then shortstop Pee Wee Reese came over and stood next to him. He put his arm around Jackie Robinson and then faced the crowd, showing to the crowd that I am not ashamed of this man. I am his friend, and I'm going to stand by him, and I am loyal to him. 
As a result, the fans grew quiet. Robinson later said that that arm around his shoulder saved his entire career. The gesture spoke more eloquently than the words, this man is my friend. You know, this type of example and, and, and the example of Paul and the church at Philippi, it does beg the question here for all of us this morning. What kind of friend am I? What kind of friend are you? Proverbs 18 and verse 24 says, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, of course, a reference to our relationship with Christ. But a lot of people think, I don't have very many friends, and the friends I have, they're not very good friends because they don't do a lot for me. Well, maybe your definition of friendship is wrong. And if that is your definition, that's the wrong definition. Because here, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly. Why don't you decide to be a better friend to the friends that you have instead of hoping that they'll be better friends to you? Is someone in this world thankful for your friendship? Have you invested in someone else's life? If not, I would encourage you to make some necessary changes along those lines. So many lessons today for us in this passage showing Paul's heart of gratitude for the church at Philippi. Here's some lessons that I want to leave us with as we close this message this morning. First of all, who do you need to be thankful for that helped you get to this point in your life? Who invested in you? Who do you need to take time to thank God for? And who do you need to take time to thank for their involvement and help and encouragement and support along the way? And then also, who can you invest in and pray for and encourage and support? Who can you be a blessing to and help them get to the next level in their life? Also, are you being faithful to Christ as He works in your life, as He leads you through the mountaintops and through the valleys? Or are you saying, Lord, I only want to follow you. I only want to be faithful to you as long as you're leading me through the good times. Are you going to be faithful? Are you fearlessly following Christ no matter the potential risk? Right now, I'm thankful for the freedom to be a Christian here in America, but I can see that there's coming a time where Christians are potentially going to be greatly persecuted here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. I'm sad to report that, but I believe that's going to happen unless some real radical changes take place. Are, are you going to fearlessly follow Christ no matter the potential risk? And we learned about the importance of friendship, so what kind of friend are you? And finally and most importantly, have you allowed Christ's work to start in you? Have you believed on Christ? If not, I would encourage you today, invite you to come and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Paul's heart of gratitude. We can learn a lot from the relationship he had with this church. And I hope that we'll take heed to the lessons that we've learned. Let's pray together today. Lord, we're grateful for this passage of Scripture and how rich and deep it is. And Lord, we really only just scratched the surface of what we could glean from this passage. But Lord, we ask that you would help us to take the lessons that we have 
talked about and apply them to our lives. Lord, I pray most of all, if there's someone here today that does not yet know Jesus Christ, has never personally placed their faith and trust in Him alone for salvation, Lord, I pray that today would be the day they make that decision. Lord, I ask that you would work in their heart, help them to realize that time is short. Eternity is long. Heaven is wonderfully sweet and hell is horrible. Help them to understand all of that and come to Christ while they can. And Lord, for those of us who have, help us to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to be friends, a a friend to those around us. Help us, Lord, to invest in others and to be thankful for those who have invested in us.